very fine. Very fine. Very fine. Very fine. Very fine. Hello, and thank you for tuning in to Very Fine, the podcast where we answer your burning comics questions. This particular episode, we have some questions that have some simple answers, but we go a long roundabout way to get to those answers. Brittany Beestick Stickler asks, why were comic books started and created in the first place? Did you know that there are two truly American art forms? The most well-known one is jazz, which started and was refined in the United States. The other just so happens to be sequential art, better known to the general public as comic books. Sequential art has been around for for centuries, as pointed out from Scott McCloud in his Understanding Comics graphic novel. But just as jazz has some distant roots to other countries, so do comics, with the first comic book printed in America being from Swiss cartoonist Rodolf Topfer in 1842, Obadiah Oldbuck. Americans went nuts for the thing, inspiring hundreds of young artists. In 1883, Palmer Cox came up with a strip called The Brownies, and in 1895, a comic called Hogan's Alley was published. There was a character in Hogan's Alley that was so liked by the general public that strips of this character, who was called The Yellow Kid, were collected into books. Eventually, newspapers joined magazines in printing comic strip serials, and in 1922, the first monthly comic book came out. The book, called Comics Monthly, was focused on an individual comic strip collection. Little Orphan Annie comics debuted in 1926, and Mickey Mouse comics followed in 1930. After nearly a decade of comics dedicated to a slew of different genres, Action Comics No. 1 hit the presses in 1938 and changed everything. Now, the root of all this is why did they start in the first place? What I've gathered is that sequential art was first created to convey an idea in an eye-catching fashion, or to serve as a diversion to the artist's friends and families. But comic books, the collecting of strips, served to appease the reader's aching desire to have this art form all in one place, and eventually to be able to tell a longer narrative. Basically, people fell in love with sequential art, and the art itself has evolved to fit the needs of the audience. Kurt Klein asks, Thought Bubbles, what happened to them? Now, I love this question. I've had the chance to speak with several several creators on the subject, especially in regards to omniscient narrator versus first-person account. And the answer is, yeah, a bit anticlimactic. Thought Balloons played a big part of comic book storytelling from the 1930s to around the 1980s, giving readers direct access to the characters' innermost thoughts. These could be immediately connected to the thinker, as the trail of tiny balloons would puff from the character to the thought. With the dawn of the 1980s, comic creators began to branch out to more artistic modes of storytelling, using the narrator captions to great effect, like in Chris Claremont's Uncanny X-Men, or in Walt Simonson in The Mighty Thor. In one particular instance, in Claremont's mutant soap opera, Uncanny X-Men 162, readers saw a lone wolverine fighting through a legion of aliens and narrating his actions with captions. This was a drastic change, and one that would eventually follow the character during his own evolution. However, two creators ushered in dramatic use of captions in their comics in the 1980s, comic works that would become so powerfully received that they would go on to influence armies of writers and artists for years to come. The Dark Knight Returns by Frank Miller, and The Watchmen by Alan Moore. 
These two creators use captions to move the reader through their dark tales, allowing the characters themselves to tell the story. Not a single thought balloon pierced these stories. In fact, regarding thought bubbles, Alan Moore said, If I failed to convey it through dialogue, if the artists failed to convey it through facial expressions, then I failed as a writer. I shouldn't have to dumb down the book by using thought bubbles. That's talking down to your audience, and that's something I won't do. That is very damning. Moore considers the bubbles as disrespecting the reader's intelligence. Comics legend Kurt Busiek also speaks to how cool the captions became to not just readers, but to the creators too. He said, There are readers and writers who like the immediacy of thought balloons and who like the charm of an omniscient narrator. Books like Master of Kung Fu had an atmosphere of sophistication that inspired a wave of writers. And on top of that, writers like Frank Miller, who were strongly inspired by pulp and hard-boiled crime fiction, brought those in as an influence. I remember being very impressed at how well Frank used third-person directed and first-person in his 1980s works like Daredevil, Born Again, and how well he wove multiple narrative voices together in Electra Assassin. I think the success of works like that drew more people to switch away from the traditional third-person omniscient, and they liked the effect it gave. And audiences liked it too, so books written that way got a better response than books written old school. And there, dear listener, is the crux of this whole question. Readers and writers began to see the thought balloons as corny tropes that didn't serve a purpose in these new comics for older readers. Sure, Brian Michael Bendis tried to make Fetch happen by publicly trying to bring thought bubbles back for the Mighty Avengers. But when popular characters like Wolverine are written almost exclusively with narrative captions, it's hard to find room for some bubbles. And finally, Ben Raven asks... What do Wolverine's toes taste like? Old James Howlett has been through a lot in his long, long lifetime and has suffered many indignities. He's been burned, stabbed, blown up, and on several occasions, he's been eaten. I believe we can deduce the answer to Ben's question by examining a few of the times Wolverine has been eaten. In one of the more extreme instances of Wolverine being eaten, we can refer to giant-sized old man Logan, by Mark Millar and Steve McNiven. In this instance, OML is going head-to-head with a deranged Bruce Banner, hacking and slashing him until he hulks out and chomps down, gobbling up Logan. Eventually, Logan busts out of the Hulk's guts, but in between the initial eating and the clawing out, Hulk seemed pretty satisfied with his meal. Another time Wolverine served as a meal was in Wolverine 165 by Sean Chen and Frank Thierry which sees Logan and Beast trapped in a superhuman prison. In this issue, Wolverine is caught in a pit with an ancient evil named Mavis, who is basically a cannibal version of Rogue. He gains his powers from eating the flesh of others. Its partially rotted and decrepit flesh is restored when it feasts on Logan, saying his blood is refreshing and his meat is invigorating. The last instance of a Wolverine feast comes from, well, Wolverine himself. In New X-Men 148 by Grant Morrison and Phil Jimenez, Wolvie admits to Jean Grey that he's actually had to munch on himself to survive. One time, I survived for six months under a glacier, biting strips off my own arm. Healing Factor grew the flesh right back. The delivery of the line seems more like he's trying to impress Jean than console her, but it definitely lacks any sort of hint as to how he tastes, other than badass. 
Probably the best hint of what Wolverine's toes taste a bit like comes from a 2013 tie-in to the Wolverine movie starring Hugh Jackman. This particular product was only released in Australia, New Zealand, and Canada by Take 5 Gum, a flavor touted as adamantium, which coats Wolverine's bones. The flavor had a citrus quality to it. With all the information we've gathered, I think we're going to have to assume that Wolverine's toes would be a refreshing lemony orange flavor. Of course. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, We look forward to fielding more of your questions in the future. And in the meantime, please take a look at all the podcasts that Court of Nerds offered, from Captain Dick Sledge's RSS feed, to the traditional main podcast, to That's So Braven, to even Reverse Centaur. We can find those on iTunes, and if you would, please give us some stars and reviews, as that helps immensely with spreading the words, or just tell people to listen. I'm Grant Stoy, I've been your host, and thank you so much for the questions and for tuning in. Uh, bye-bye.